Every, every, every New Testament church has problems. Every current church has problems. Uh, we clearly do not say, as you walk in the door, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you left your previous church. This is the perfect church. Uh, nope. It's false advertising, right? That's a bait and hook. Like, we're perfect, and you get in, you're like, oof, these people got problems. Problems. The church in Corinth, problems with sexual sin. The churches in Galatia, problems with legalism. The, the, the churches that James is writing to, problems with quarreling and arguments, maybe even to, to the point where they're violent. And so if, if marriage is a union of two sinners, then what is the church? It's a union of a plethora of sinners. That's what it is. And so I don't say that to excuse sin. I'm saying we should expect sin and fight sin. Like to actually acknowledge that we have problems, that there's things that are broken in us and allow the Spirit, uh, God, through God's Word, speak into our problems. And so that's what I want this morning. I, I want to hear God speak into our problems. Now, some of our church problems, our specific church, you, us, me, are they the exact same as James in their whole context? No, but the same spirit is, is there. The same attitude is what I mean. The same posture can't be there. And so I, I want to look at this text by asking three questions from this text and letting God speak into it, okay? You with me? Okay. So first question to ask the text, can we be wise and inactive? Look at verse 13. James 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. So uh, up to this point, James has made very clear that faith in Jesus affects everyday, ordinary life in this world. It changes how we view uh, and think about and interact in our relationships, in our life. Like this faith in Jesus bears practical fruits uh, like acts of mercy and care for others. And that's, that's a bit counter because common tendency for us is to equate wisdom with cleverness. Someone's clever, quick-witted or has a lot of degrees, we're like, man, that's just a wise person. I don't need to hear from that. I need to speak to them. They need to tell me. I need some more information transfer from them. But, but James is saying, in looking for wisdom, we're not to look for quick wit or degrees or a voluminous vocabulary. Yeah, I have a thesaurus as well. Thesaurus. I can't pronounce it, but I have one. <laughs> we're not to look for a voluminous vocabulary. What we're to look for is the good life. Not clever answers, but good works done in gentleness. That's his phrase. So the, the good life, the life that displays wisdom, is made up of good deeds done in humility. So we can't say yes to James' question of who is wise and, and, and understanding among you. And we're like, me? Number one, it's kind of weird. Uh, it seems more rhetorical. 
also a bit prideful. We'll get to that. But we can't say yes to this question if we don't serve and help our brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. Wisdom is practical skill, skills to live the life of Jesus, to minister and love like he did, to be a warm and helpful presence like him, to gently teach and correct and rebuke and encourage, to give and bless and help those in need. That's wisdom. So if you have, if you have 10 Bible studies under your belt, but don't live out your faith, you're not wise in understanding. Told you? You might get angry sometimes. But, but you can get angry with James, and bigger than that, you can get angry with God, because I'm just trying to explain what, what James is saying here. This is a lifestyle. Following Jesus is a real life where it's like all in, all encompassing where your choices and your attitudes and your actions and your words are formed and shaped by the gospel. So we, we can't be wise and inactive. That's the, that's the first answer to the first questions. Christians can't be armchair theologians. We're soldiers in a war. We're athletes in a race. We're fir farmers working the ground. We're a family mutually caring for and helping and serving one another. We're ambassadors on mission, serving our neighborhood, our city, boldly sharing the gospel. So from what he said in chapter 2 and what he says now, faith works and wisdom is active. There's, there's nothing where you can say, I have this faith, but doesn't bear any fruit. He says, that's dead and useless. Your religion is useless. What he's saying here, you, if you claim to be wise, but inactive, this actually doesn't bear fruit towards other people. No, it's not that. That's not happening. And this all sets up, this one sentence sets up the juxtaposition in the, the rest of this passage between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. So my second question how can we destroy the church, this family, your relationships? Like, if you ever needed to do something in your car and you did a how-to YouTube video, right? Right now, this is a how-to. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I meant, like, I go watch Dan do his video on YouTube so I can know how to do it because he knows how to do it and I need to understand. This is a how-to destroy the church. Verses 13, 14 through 16. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. So how can we destroy this church? Bitter envy and selfish ambition. How can you destroy your nuclear family? Bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now, this bitter envy. We think, think about jealousy. We think maybe about the jealousy of God in the Old Testament. That, that's good jealousy because he has no rival and he wants your heart and not you to be devoted to anything other than him. To have a God, an idol before him. But here, what, what, what James is speaking of this bad jealousy that people display 
when other people challenge their own ideas and gain some hearing for them. Meaning, this is, this is bitter in me. We want to be in the limelight. We want to know the most and know better than everyone else. Have the best ideas. Everyone say, yes, you have the best ideas. We're going with whatever you say. But then someone challenges our ideas or our thoughts. And other people start listening to them. And we burn with bitter envy. That's what he's talking about. And this selfish ambition is unique because the only other occurrence of this phrase, this word, in, uh, before the New Testament comes in Aristotle. So, that, so this, this word isn't used before the New Testament anywhere else that, that's recorded except for in Aristotle. And he used it to describe the narrow partisan zeal of factional greedy politicians in his own day. That's how he described it. They have this selfish ambition. So this, this meaning makes real sense here in James. Some who pride themselves on their wisdom and understanding display a jealous, bitter partisanship that is the antithesis of humility produced by wisdom. We could call it wisdom. It's not wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. It's earthy, unspiritual, demonic. And so... So what this, this wisdom is, or this worldly wisdom is, it's this selfish ambition that makes our priorities the top. The top priority are our own interests, getting ahead. Or just to put it nicely, self-centered arrogance. Family, one of the, the most important factors for us in our growth and wisdom is our perspective. Our perspective of how we see things, how we view things. And worldly wisdom views life from a very limited perspective. Like the preacher in Ecclesiastes that, that starts off with just doesn't see anything beyond the sun. That's worldly wisdom. Worldly lis- wisdom doesn't see the things in light of eternity, but only in the now, the perceived immediate impact of now, focused on what is best for self-advancement, self-pleasure now. What James again has is that is dangerous and divisive and motivated by self-centered ambition. Like entering into your community group, corporate worship, your friendships, with this mindset is disorder and divisive. Like if we walk into it with, what can I get out of this? How will I benefit? That's the same thing that he's discussing in chapter two when people are showing favoritism. Because we go to people or think about people as objects that we can get something from, and so how do you treat the poor? What does James say? Put them in the back. We hide them somewhere. Why? Because we know we can't get anything from them. We can't benefit from them. Why do we flatter the rich and bring them to the front and uh, do a whole pomp and circumstance as they come in? Because we know we can benefit from them. We want to attach ourselves to them and kind of try to ascend the ladder with them if we're just riding on their coattails even. So this mindset is, what is best for me? How can I assert myself? promote myself, advance myself. That's worldly wisdom. While the wisdom of God, Jesus tells us, 
Deny yourself. Humble yourself. Worldly wisdom, this false wisdom, does not lead to good works and humility. When he says it's earthly and spiritual and demonic, you can just take that and see what he's, what he's getting at is that it's characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's this arrogant pride that wants to promote ourselves and push others down. Or visually, step on someone's head so that you can get above them. That's what this worldly wisdom is motivated by. Pushing ourselves forward while pulling others down. <laughs> and James is direct and confrontational. That is not heavenly. That's demonic. That's demonic. I, 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 I want to press this into us because I've had hundreds of conversations where people will say, I struggle with pride, and they put it as like just this kind of junk drawer term that kind of covers everything, and it's a thing, but how they say to me so nonchalant, and as I wrestle with scripture, what I wrestle with is, what they're saying is demonic. I struggle with pride. What you're saying is you have this self-centered arrogance that is empowered by the enemy, James is putting the weight on us, not to shame us, but for us to feel the conviction of our sin, to feel the heaviness of what this is. I mean, think about it. The devil himself tried to push himself up by pushing God down, trying to ascend the throne and take over in place of God. But the humble Messiah went down to mankind as a man, and to obey the Father, even to death, exalting the Father. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Now, it may feel weird because the economy of God is so countercultural, right? So what I'm saying is, as we try to make a name for ourselves and view our life like we are the God and the world centers around us, the God-man came to us to set us free and to reveal the truth. Like we want to ascend the ladder and be the top dog, and the top dog came down the ladder to be treated like a dog, mocked, ridiculed, slandered, crucified. And this is the wisdom. He is the wisdom of God to reconcile us to himself. For what? For our bitter envy and selfish ambition. The God-man comes to us to show us the humble life and also to die to pay the penalty for our self-centered arrogance. And Rose, this is good news, family. And Rose to gift us his righteousness and a new heart and the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in this path of wisdom. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you to get off the exhausting and futile treadmill of selfish ambition. To 
humble yourself and confess you need something beyond the Son to change you, to forgive you, to ferociously love you. You need Jesus to deliver you from your self-centered, myopic view. And not only deliver you from, but also deliver you to the one who reigns eternally. That everything is about. For from him and through him and to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You need him to give you a new life, a new heart, to adopt you into his family. And so, friend, turn and believe now. Humble yourself. Confess your need and run to the one who can help you and rescue and deliver you. Real talk, he is your only hope in life and death. Now, if you're a Christian, the gospel comes to bear on us as well because we know how worldly wisdom can infiltrate our hearts and it can cause disorder and every evil practice in our relationships, in our churches, in our community groups, where people are pursuing their own selfish concerns and partisan causes rather than the good of the body as a whole. Like we've seen this. It's a simple formula. I mean, this is how churches have split over the color of the carpet. Like something like that turns into massive disorder. Why? Bitter envy and selfish ambition. Self-centered arrogance. Well, churches have run off solid, loving pastors. Where pastors and leaders have demeaned and harmed members where little conflicts turn into raging fires because of gossip and slander. I, I was a part of a church who imploded because of selfish ambition on the elder team. Like we know this. Like we've experienced this. We've seen this. And what's, what's a bit scary is that in our self-centered arrogance, our pride, you know what pride does? It blinds us to our blindness. It blinds us to our sin. So that if we're in the midst of that conflict, we refuse to hear from other people. We refuse to be confronted. We don't see it like they see it, so no, it's on us. We refuse to be wrong. Even Sometimes we refuse to even possibly being wrong. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. And when you think about demonic as well, so you, you see it at the beginning with uh, the devil trying to usurp the authority of God. But also, do you know what the devil, what Jesus tells us about the devil currently and active? He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Think about that. <laughs> While we are overly concerned sometimes with, with being attacked from the outside, Satan is imploding us from the inside. 
not destroying us by persecution from outside the church, but from selfish ambition within the church. This is a sobering warning. Sobering. And your marriage can go the same way, the same route. I mean, what if both people are there for your marriage to get for what they can get out of the relationship? What if the highest goal of the two is their own individual happiness? What if one of the two think, live like that? What if good desires become demands? Think about this way. When a husband may have a desire, but it becomes a demand, and he demands convenience and comfort and independence, that those desires become to rule him. And so he spends the bulk of the time away from his wife with friends or a game or whatever to escape, to get away, to have some independence. Maybe he drinks to drown out the burdens, whatever self-medication to, to drown out the burdens of marriage and parenting. Why? Because what may have been a good desire for, uh, for comfort in like just this, this relational dynamic became a demand, and now it rules him. Or what about a wife who demands approval and lashes out in anger saying hateful things when she doesn't feel like she's getting it? or runs to another relationship to find it. Some of us have been uh, taught for years, we grew up in the church, and we were so focused, honed in on external behaviors uh, and things that were evil that we miss that even good desires can become idols when they turn to demands. Even good desires can become idols when they turn from desires to demands. Because what does that look like? If you demand that from the other person or from your church or community group, maybe it's a good desire, but now you demand it and they don't get it, you judge them and punish them. Are you with me? Are you seeing like just what's happening with James and how he's like confronting us and this self-centered ambition and these demands of our heart? Like he's going to get into it. We're going we're gonna to break down chapter four very uh, uh, smallly, <laughs> very, very, I ain't got a word. Uh, we'll do three verses next week. Why? Because I want to really talk about conflict. He's going to say next week, why are there fights and quarrels among you? And if you hadn't read that before, so often your response would be because that person. Why are there fights and quarrel among our community group? That person. Why is there some division in our church? Her. He says, isn't it the desires within you that rage within you? This self-centered arrogance, this selfish ambition leads to disorder and every kind of evil practice. So how can we destroy the church? You want a how-to? Bitter envy and selfish ambition. That's how. Be ultimately about ourselves. That's how. Put our concerns above everyone else's. Make our interest number one. But James says that is living a Lie, because you claim to be wise, but conduct yourself in a way that denies that claim. Because if you say you have wisdom, 
but you operate in bitter envy and selfish ambition. Those are contrary to wisdom and humility. So you're living a lie. So James is trying to, like, I don't know if he's really trying to shake us, but warn us and shake us out of this mindset or this path to wake us up to the potential of a humble community, which is the third question. How can we build a healthy church with a gospel culture? Look at verse 17. But the wisdom of God, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. There's another path. There's another wisdom. We're not enslaved to worldly wisdom. You are free to say no to selfish ambition. You are free to say no to bitter envy. You are free to say yes to humility. Free. Jesus has set you free. Galatians makes it clear for that. To do what we want and sin however we want. No, free to worship Jesus and serve others. You're free. You're free to do this. And not only are you free, you're also in a solid relationship where you can receive wisdom. And that takes us back to James 1, 5 through 6. What did he open with? Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should run to the world, a magazine, Dr. Phil. Mm. That's a dated reference. I don't even know if he's on the air. Maury Povich, I don't know. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, not what I just said, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without doubting. So you don't get this wisdom that James is speaking about with intellectual effort or practical experience as much as you get it from being with God, with asking God. This wisdom, godly wisdom, sees things from an eternal perspective that can only come from God. Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. That's who gives it. That's who has it. That's who gives it. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So that, that fear of the Lord, that trembling reverence before him, that intense awe before him, you know what, that, that's, that's humbling yourself. That's humility. Humbling yourself before God is the beginning of wisdom. Coming to him, confessing you need him, and that he is all wise, that's the beginning of wisdom. Many of us wouldn't say we know more than God, but functionally we live like we know better than God. We know better. We've heard what he said. 
we, we see how he describes what it looks like to follow Jesus and live this beautiful, vibrant life, but we know better. You feel the tension? That's back to demonic wisdom. It's pride. Humility confesses, you know more God and you know better than me. To even know him, the knowledge of the Holy One, that brings understanding. So to know him is to be, whole, to, to be humbled by him. To behold the radiant glory of the eternal Lord is to see ourselves with a proper perspective. Do you recall what happens with the people in the Old Testament when they encounter, experience the glory of God? It's a different posture. It's quick. It's fast. On their face. On their face. Humbled. Humbled. Steve Lawson writes, humility begins with seeing who God is seeing yourself compared to God, and then seeing yourself as God sees you. When you catch a glimpse of the holiness and perfection and manifold beauty of God, then you see yourself before him and say, this, I'm not even close, I don't match up. I feel like an ant. I feel dirty, unclean. My lips are unclean. I'm around a people of unclean lips like Isaiah 6. And then you see yourself as God sees you. And if you're in Christ, how does he see you? Beloved son, beloved daughter, righteous. That's humbling. That's humbling. You didn't scrub yourself clean. Christ died and then gifted you his righteous robe for you to wear. It's humbling. And this humility before God is the, the beginning of wisdom, but also wisdom from God produces humility. It's like both and. It works both ways. Which is exactly the opposite of worldly wisdom. How does it work? Wisdom from the world produces self-centered pride in man. Sam Albury states this, Humility and wisdom go together in this passage. To truly know yourself is to know yourself as someone in need of God's grace. And what does arrogance do? It denies that need. I'm not needy. I'm self-sufficient. I'm on my own. I can handle this. I can earn this. I can make this happen. I'll figure out enough strength to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. That's arrogance. Arrogance tries to earn an identity by itself. To make yourself something by asserting yourself and achieving and performing. But you know what humility does? It receives an identity. That's humility. Humility. Acknowledges, I am needy, and I need an identity to be gifted to me. 
I need a righteousness outside of me. I need a family to be pulled into. I don't really need to be better. I need to be made new. A new creation with a new heart. And you can see this juxtaposition in our world, uh, in pop psychology, if, if I can call, that, call it that or use that term. Just think about this. This is just one example. But if you turn to like poor self-worth, despairing, what you need is more self-worth. Like that, that's the worldly wisdom there. Meaning, <laughs> the worldly wisdom's answer to pride is to add more pride. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's like, there's a fire in my backyard. You know what I should do? Put more fire on it. I think that's going to, it's going to work. I'll figure it out. Let's go. Godly wisdom states, whether you turn to self-esteem, arrogance, or poor self-worth, despair, you need to preach the gospel to yourself that you're now chosen by God in Christ. That Jesus secured your election. That's what you need. But you hear that what you're doing is you're humbly confessing you need something outside yourself, not saying, I need to boost myself up further. I need love. And not that love of self that just makes me feel by myself. I need love from a foreign entity that ferociously loves me, knows me fully, and loves me deeply. That's what I need. And that's humility. But this worldly wisdom is why I, I, uh, <laughs> I caution people in my age range. People in my age range, uh, what I experienced at the Paradox is we wanted, we wanted older people in our lives. We had this desire for older, older people in our church, and it was a good desire. Myself, Pastor Jim, prayed for it for, for years, and by God's grace, he's answered that prayer. But those desires became demands because he was like, we need some wisdom in this room. And I just told him, I, I kind of had to learn over a few years, but I just told him, hey, age doesn't equate to wisdom. It doesn't. Like, I, I hear your good desire, but if you're demanding that, I, I think it's going to rule you and it's going to uh, fail you because age doesn't necessarily equate to wisdom. There are bitter, cranky, self-involved, self-centered 80-year-olds. There are. you typically see godly wisdom in age plus time with God. I mean, you should run to meet with a humble 80-year-old who has been walking intimately with God for decades. They're like, well, what does it look like? Bitter, cranky? No. What does wisdom really look like? And that's what James tells us, this list. Very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. Pure, right? It's first pure. What's pure? Well, that's innocence and, and moral blamelessness. Gentle. Gentle indicates a willingness to yield to others. 
and a corresponding unwillingness to exact strict claims. It's gentle. Compliant. That's in the CSB. If you don't like that word, that has like a very negative connotation in our day because uh, we think about compliance as weak, credulous gullibility. <laughs> That's not what this is. This is a willing deference to others when unalterable theological principles or moral principles are involved. Like, it, like we're going to fight over the first things, right? Like we're going to fight and maybe divide on the Trinity and Jesus being fully God and fully man and Jesus being the payment for our sins, his atonement in our place. But some of these things that are secondary or tertiary, we can be compliant on those, have a willing deference to others. That's compliant. What's mercy? Wisdom looks like mercy, and mercy is love for the neighbor that shows itself in action. What's good works? Acts of mercy. It actually happening. Unwavering. That's simple, straightforward, impartial, without pretense. That's not playing a part. That's being genuine. Not putting off facade or fake or playing a kind of a role and acting for everyone. It's being genuine. It's all restated. From chapters 2 and 3, what we see is that faith works and wisdom is active. Active. And this wisdom, praise God, bears righteousness and peace. So, so how do we build this family, this church? To answer the third question. How do we build this? From this text, three things. We forsake worldly wisdom, we humble ourselves, and we seek godly wisdom. That probably doesn't, if, if you've been a Christian for a few years, that probably doesn't explode your brain. But we just need to go back to James 1. Will you hear these three things, or will you do these three things? Some of you guys could teach on this, could regurgitate this. But wisdom, when it's not seen in intellectual information transfers from one person to another, wisdom is seen in life lived, where this actually takes root and moves, where we actually work, repent, forsake worldly wisdom, humble ourselves before God, and seek godly wisdom. I want you to see it in Philippians 2. It will be on the screen. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. You know what I hear from that? 
reconciliation and peace can happen in our relationships, our groups, our marriages, our church. I hear hope. I hear great hope. Like through humble repentance, a demand can turn back into a desire. Like, do you want to breathe joy and peace into your relationships? Then turn from selfish ambition and in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Now, I told you I've seen destruction, right? In relationships and marriages and churches. But I've also witnessed peace in marriages. After humble confession and dependence on God took root, I've witnessed church leadership teams turn from seeing the other as enemies to becoming allies and friends. I've seen friendships on the brink transformed by the grace of God. Like there's hope here. You need to taste the bitterness of your sin if you're in that selfish, self-centered arrogance. But you need to also, in response, taste the sweetness of God's grace. There is hope here. There's great hope. I I just, if I sit down with a couple of parties to try to mediate a conflict, and they they both or all walk in humbly and longing for wisdom, you know what I do? Like, viscerally, I take a big, grateful sigh of relief. I'm like, okay, I'm hopeful. Now let's go. Like, I'm filled with like, okay, expectation, hope. The Lord's going to do something here. There's hope in this, having the same mind of Christ, humbling ourselves and considering others more important than ourselves. I mean, what, what is God going to do with this? What is he going to do in us? How is he going to keep forming and shaping us in this, this community? I love it. A church, a community bustling with good works. A family flowing with wise love, practically serving and blessing and helping one another in our words and our deeds. A church consumed with the glory of one, and that's not ourselves, but the one who reigns eternally. A church who is ambitiously, because I should have said this earlier, Ambition, all ambition is not evil ambition, selfish ambition. So think about a church who ambitiously is working to worship Jesus in all of life and minister to one another. Vigilantly scanning the horizon, looking for how can I meet needs? How can I serve? How can I build up? How can I encourage? How can I bear good fruit with gentleness? James is, again, serious and direct, but his goal, his motivation is love. Because he's wanting to move us to forsake godly wisdom and humble ourselves and to seek godly wisdom. And so my, my one question conclusion is this, will you be moved or will you dig your heels in, in arrogance? Will you be moved? Will you allow James to actually move you by the Spirit 
or in hearing this, you get defensive. You may interpret the Spirit's conviction as shame. To be clear, I'm not trying to attack you. I don't want you to feel that way. I want us, I want us to be moved to forsake this worldly wisdom and to collectively humble ourselves and ask God for wisdom and go to him and be with him. I'm going to pray for it. Father, I ask for wisdom. We don't have it. We need it. And Spirit, I ask for you to convict. And that's a kindness from you to lead us to repentance. To turn us from despair and arrogance to joy as we behold your face, your glory. I ask, Spirit, for joyful repentance throughout this room with wherever you're working. Whatever specific, nuanced ways in each of our hearts. Would this be a, a funeral in the sense of feeling the darkness and the sadness of our sin, but also a celebration? as we taste of your grace again. See Jesus even more clearly. And experience your mercy and grace and love washing over us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.